Sing, goddess, the, the anger of when Peleus, God son of Achilles. And the earth. Tell me the about a complicated to me equal to the gods that man. On a hang, thousand bucklers. Man is Agamemnon. My husband is just the work delivery. Gentlemen, I'm worse. Would you not forget it? Ever can destroy. Will be to govern the peoples of the world in your empire. Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Good Fight Pod. I'm the host for today. I'm Natalia. Um, and today we'll be talking about crime and punishment. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, crime. Yay, punishment. Yay, punishment. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go ahead and get started, why don't we do a quick round of introductions? Hello, everyone. I'm Chase. I'm a student here at Columbia. I've been here on previous episodes, and I am very, very excited to talk about this novel today. I'm Gabrielle. Also a student, also have been on this um, podcast. I'm a, as I've as I labeled myself a few minutes before we started recording. I'm a recovering ex-Russian literature major. That doesn't mean that I have any authority on any of this. It just means that I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> Hi, I'm Timothy. Timothy. As, yeah, Tim O.T. Tim O.T. As some people write in their planning documents. Yeah, that's what you write down. That's, that's what I write down at the very least. Um, but yeah. All right, let's get, on to, let's get on to it. So, crime and punishment. I, as somebody who is taking Lithum right now, um, and actually crime and punishment was recently taken off of our syllabus just because our professor didn't think there was enough space. I was so devastated. I was like, oh no, we don't take out crime and punishment because there's honestly so much that can be said um, about this novel. It is one of the most famous pieces of literature of all time and a lot of philosophical, theolo the theological meat can be taken out of it. Um, so I guess to start that, um, what is anyone's familiarity with Dostoevsky? What do we know about him? What was his relationship to Christianity? And how can that influence our perception of crime and punishment? Anyone? Everyone's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as if I knew the guy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Dostoevsky was, he's one of the greatest Russian writers ever to live. Some people say he was the greatest. What can I say of value? There's so much to say about Dostoevsky. Orthodox but, Christian. But yeah, I mean, sure, he was an Orthodox Christian. We could, I guess, talk about the fact that what solidified him in the faith was he he actually was, a. I believe it was, he was a part of some sort of revolutionary cause in russia right i think Jeez. it was uh, i don't know what exactly the cause was but i know that he was a part of a reading group yes he was a yeah he was a part of a reading group in russia that um got him sent basically to be executed and at the last minute when he was supposed to be executed he saw in the distance uh, the sunlight shimmering i think on the steeple of a church and right when he saw that he was actually pardoned and instead of being executed, he got something which was a little bit more favorable, but still pretty devastating, which is he had, to, he had to go to a Siberian work camp. Um, and his experiences, not only in the camp, but also just the act of preparing oneself to die and then being spared of that is very, one can see that in his work very easily. He was also a gambler. He also was never fully financially stable. He didn't reach a lot of fame in his lifetime i believe no, but he, did he not. but he had a, a a little bit of a following somewhat he wrote a lot 
he was a contemporary of Tolstoy, but I don't I don't think that they were friends or anything. They just kind of knew of each other. Yeah, no? I don't think they actually ever even met. Right. They were familiar with each other's work, but I don't think they ever met each other. No, certainly, certainly. I, I think my point in asking that question is like, I think a lot of what Dostoevsky experienced within his life is obviously translated within all of his works and not even just crime and punishment there's notes from underground the brothers karmaza which faven loves by the way she always she's always talking about that book who isn't who isn't yeah so i wanted to give in that brief preview and recognize that like we are dealing with not necessarily a piece of pagan literature as we have been reviewing within this past season within the last season as well we're dealing with some really really cool theological topics from a very you know this isn't explicitly a christian book but there are certainly plenty of christian allegories that we can choose from so with that said well let's start with a summary does anyone want to give a quick summary of crime and punishment yeah i can i can summarize it although if you're a lit hum student and haven't finished the novel yet just skip a couple seconds you know <laughs> so crime and punishment it follows a we can probably call him an anti-hero named raskonikov he is someone who and and please correct me on the the details but he is a former student who contrives an idea that he has the power to murder someone morally. And so he plans to murder this woman and ends up murdering her and also murdering her sister and also uh, stealing their goods. And that's actually, you would think that would be at the end of the novel, but it's at the very beginning. And so the whole novel follows him, detectives and other characters within this entire novel, like trying to figure out who the murderer is, his own psychological torment of the one who did murder and eventually his i will i will i will save the epilogue and the ending but tune in next week because we will have a part two for crime and punishment we can talk more about the ending i think it's very interesting to point out that you would think that it comes at the end the murder but it actually comes at the beginning you could almost say that this is a book that starts with the climax and the rest of the majority of the book is just the denouement thereafter which i think is very interesting yeah and it's so great that you guys brought that up because i wanted to First of all, like go ahead and establish what exactly this type of genre this book would fall into. It's a thriller. It's a psychological thriller. Um, and the, within our own modern context, when we think of a thriller, like whether it's like a book or a film, we think it's like jam-packed violent. There's all this stuff going on. It's really, really like intense. And this book is very intense. Um, but as Gabrielle and Chase mentioned, it starts with a murder within the first part and then the rest of it and the parts that are far more intense and far more um i guess one can say depressing uh, is the psychological torment that goes afterwards and the deconstruction of roskonikov's mind as he deals with this guilt so so i guess on that note how do you think how does raskonikov rationalize his decision to murder this woman this might be a huge question but what are the direct consequences of such an event transpiring and i can elaborate on what i mean by that later but anyone does anyone have any thoughts i guess it's important to talk about the intellectual problems that dostoevsky is reacting to you can very clearly see that within the mind of Raskolnikov before he's going to murder this woman, a lot of the justifications that he's using are derived from very enlightenment, very rationalist type principles, this idea that human reason will save us, um, that we can understand the actions of humans and the moral value 
of an action rationally. And I definitely think that Dostoevsky doesn't necessarily try to disprove this, but he's showing inherent problems with this way of thinking, this this idea that you can rationalize every aspect of human action. At the end of the day, human emotion and human action is actually very irrational. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the answer to our salvation doesn't lie in human action, but maybe in more of a saving grace, almost. I don't know if anyone else wants to speak. I don't think that I covered it in full breath. Or another thing that uh, that kind of um, <laughs> another thing that you can kind of point out is that he has this almost Ubermensch mentality, which I mean. They were Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. You could call them maybe contemporaries, but I'd, Dostoevsky actually Nietzsche would have read Dostoevsky. But definitely Raskolnikov has this mentality of a human being that is taking an action for the betterment of everyone else in a sort of utilitarian framework. He's mm-hmm. thinking, if I murder this one person, many people will benefit from that, and he, as a man, is above certain moral laws. And he should take that action for the betterment of many people. But this is also disproven uh, through the denouement and the guilt that he feels. Really, is it okay for a person to commit an immoral action for the betterment of many people? Is it really for the betterment of many people? Is it really for the betterment of many people that one man should kill a person? And I guess to that same point, like, can Roskolnikov as a man, does he even have the ability or the authority to tap into, like whether or not like one can even commit such an act but that's like the that's theological territory i have saved for later chase did you have any thoughts well just to kind of go off what gabrielle was saying about how you know we're not just our minds that there's more to the human person than just our you know rational our rationality um and i think you see this conflict in the character of raskolnikov throughout the novel you have you know he's he's trying to rationalize his way that he can uh, murder someone and that being okay and even be for the good of others like he i think his plan was to take the what he stole from this woman and to give it to to others but you also have this conflict one with his his uh you know his his rationality but also with his his conscience like maybe his brain his mind says one thing but his conscience definitely says another throughout throughout the process mm-hmm. and that's certainly like that definitely does follow because, of course, Raskolnikov does not leave after the murder scene thinking that what he did was okay. He follows, he continues to have this guilt and this violation and like this tormenting agony just follow him all throughout the book. And it's constantly being reminded by new characters coming in, new situations coming in, speculate, you know, speculation over who murdered this woman. So, yeah, I think a lot of room and a lot of meat can be taken out of that when it comes to the ideas of conscience not even just from like a theological standpoint but also just like in general because Raskolnikov's behaviors and action actions are really not all that landish like really anyone can do it well hopefully not anyone can do it but I think y'all know what I mean (laughs) does anyone else have any other thoughts before we transition to the next question well it's not really too related to the question we're we're working with here but I was interested in this one aspect like Chase you were pulling on this idea that, you know, we're more than a brain, that then there's this conscience too. But I was interested because what we really see is this guilt, con- this guilty conscience really bears itself out primarily in a physical illness, mm. right? He's mm. laying in bed, just like totally, not only delusional, but like me- physically ill, right? Mentally and physically ill. And so I think you have this idea that not only are we more than just a brain, but like there's a body too. 
and they're related. That when your mind is suffering this torment, your body also is in this state of suffering. And I think this is this is actually very interesting because it reminds me of something that Bakhtin talks about when he's talking about... Bakhtin is a literary theorist who wrote a lot about Dostoevsky. Bakhtin talks a lot about Dostoevsky's ability to portray what he calls a carnival in literature, which is like a marriage of the high and the low. We're not just looking at the human mind, but also the human body, which can be seen as the high and the low, and a marriage of the two in showing a deeper sense of guilt. But also... It's not just, I think it's not just the mind and the body, but it's also, Raskolnikov is a sort of intellectual, right? I believe he's a student. He's an intellectual, but it's actually from his books that he gets the ability to reason out why he should commit the murder, the crime. It's actually in his interactions with other more so-called lowly parts of the town, you know, like some servants, some peasants, some everyday people that he sees the sufferings of others in society and he can understand the sufferings of the high and the low sort of go together, right? Which I definitely think that's very Russian, you know, <laughs> like an intellectual learning from, you know, serve servants or peasants, you know, other people in society. Yeah, I think this is all really great just on the conversation of how like embodiment matters, the fact that we are, you know, bodies and not just brains. And I think you see that, also in the uh, Raskolnikov's room. I think throughout the novel, you have the detail that Raskolnikov's room is like a closet. It's so small. It's so choking. You can almost kind of see the relationship between this like small, almost sufferable room and like his own thought life. Yeah. And I, I think it's, I, I agree, Gabrielle, about the importance of his interactions with other characters and how this itself begins to change and form his mind, especially with the character of Sonia. Even when it comes to his interaction with texts, the importance of a actual character mediating the text it, I, I find to be important, particularly in the scene where Raskolnikov and Sonia are in the same room and Sonia reads to him John 11, which is uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. I, I think that is something important to note. Oh, the resurrection of Lazarus. I feel like, oh, we could talk about the resurrection of Lazarus and its importance in Crime and Punishment like all day. Which we might but do next week. We'll see. We will do oh, we that oh, next okay. week. Yes. Oh, no. We can talk. We can. We can give a little prequel. I will miss it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. We'll be discussing that verse in particular next week. Um. But I guess to get into you know how this translates into our biblical understanding of guilt and conscience, I wanted to pull up a few passages of scripture. I think when looking at this, we can refer to Romans two fifteen. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consequences, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even, or even acu- excuse them. So, I guess a brief way in which we can analyze that little piece of scripture is we can see, see in Roskonikov that like he clearly knows, no matter how much he tries to rationalize his actions, or no matter how much he tries to justify exactly what he does as morally correct or somehow okay from like a utilitarian or even a consequentialist standpoint he knows that it's wrong and that once again is translated all throughout the rest of the book and we briefly did touch upon this but does anyone have any other like inner musings about this verse in particular yeah i think it's what's important about this verse is the context in which it is so basically this comes from a very complicated argument that Paul is making, or I say complicated, but he's basically just talking about how all are under sin, uh, both the 
both Israel, who was given the law, and those outside of Israel who were never under the law. And in this particular passage, he's talking about the Gentiles who never, the, those outside of Israel who never received the law, that even though they didn't know the law, you know, the parameter, the moral parameters in which if you go over, you transgress against God and you're not, you don't only transgress against God, but you're conscious of it because you're conscious of it because you know uh, what the law is. And he's basically saying that even those who did not receive the law know what the law requires because their conscience bears witness to it. And I think that's significant when we compare to Raskolnikov because as a character who would probably reject the law or reject these certain moral parameters, like his conscience still bears witness to it. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of reminded of, which Chase, I know you would be familiar with it. And Tim, you just recently read the Brothers Karamazov in, when Father Zasima is talking and he says, all are guilty for all. Um, yeah, yeah I, I kind of, I mean, this idea that the law is written on everyone's hearts, I think, and I'm reminded of also Luther because... I had to read Luther for contemporary civilizations, and I don't know why, but I became obsessed with Luther for some weird reason. <laughs> um, but this idea that the soul is not free when we're acting against the law of God because we can feel the law of God pushing on our soul, right? This idea that even if you weren't ever taught don't do this or don't do that, there's something almost within the soul, right, that kind of feels some sort of, some sort of eternal law pushing down on you when you're doing the wrong action. And I definitely think that this idea of guilt, even if it's internal, it's definitely a very social thing, right? I think that one thing that definitely unites people is not just that we're all made in the image of God, right? And that we all have the law of God written on our hearts, but that we all did fall with Adam when he sinned. We all are all guilty for all. So I guess guilt is not just internal, but also pretty social, which we see when I was talking about how his guilt kind of realizes itself when he's interacting with other people and he's seeing the sufferings of many different people in his town. I guess one thing that would be fair to raise is distinguishing between subjective and objective guilt, if that makes sense, or basically guilt that is worthy of guilt and guilt that is not worthy of guilt. And by this, I mean... I agree that guilt can often be born from like a social context and that I can be guilty of something because of my certain community that in, in the eyes of God is not sinful whatsoever. And so I, it would be perfectly fine if I wasn't guilty of it. But there are also other things where it doesn't matter which community you're found in. It doesn't matter which nation or which tribe or what language like you, it is not, it, you will be guilty of it because that is like the objective law that you're, you're bound to. And that's the way human beings were created. So how can we or how should we distinguish between those two different things? A couple episodes back, Grace Alita, when we were talking about um, Augustine's confession, Grace Alita brought up like this thing about um, babies being able to like recognize their own nakedness. And I came back at her with the, with the question of like, is that anthropologically like consistent across all civilizations that like up until a certain point, babies will like recognize their like this part of themselves? And she didn't have an answer. Um which is, which is cool. I just put her on the spot. Grace Alita, I love you. I, I guess to that, like, it would require a lot of psychological and scientific anthropological research. But I, I guess to answer your question from what I, what I briefly learned from psych last semester, there does seem to be, like a, like, a common thread between what is seen as, like, I guess, like, you know, the things that we don't necessarily need to know. Like, some people get convicted about getting their ears pierced or having their child get their ears pierced. I wouldn't call that... 
I'm sure God also would not, I'm not God, but I don't, I wouldn't consider that objectively sinful if you do decide to go get your ears pierced. Whereas most people will generally say no murder is like consistently and completely off the table wrong. And we just have this natural aversion to this, not even from like a rational point of view, but also from like this emotional, like charged fury that just naturally comes with it. And of course, like, you know, I, I do think there are arguments to be made, but mm, I think I'm just kind of rambling. What do y'all think? <laughs> well, I, I think there's like two two frameworks I would I would think about this through. The first is the framework that Paul develops in the Corinthians where he's talking about a strong and a weak conscience, right? And this kind of gets to what you were talking about, Natalia, about like getting your ears pierced or something, right? And, and in Corinthians, he's specifically, I think one of the main topics he's dealing with is food that pagans are using in like a sacrifice, right? Or, you know, some wine that they used for an offering. Should a Christian can partake in that and and paul really comes down on this idea that there's nothing wrong with doing that action itself and this is where it gets to the matter of conscience right if you have a weak conscience partaking in that food might cause you to sin right in this way that the way you're thinking about it or the way someone might see you uh, doing that action if they have a weak conscience will lead them to falter in the faith right or lead you to um, if you're the one with the weak conscience but the strong conscience really recognizes this idea that we are free in christ right that there are cultural actions that might seem wrong but that in christ we're free to do because we bear no cultural guilt if that makes sense and the second framework that i would i would think about this in is sort of like a i guess like a natural law sort of framework yeah, we can bring in like like Aquinas' theories into it. I too. was actually I was going to talk about C.S. Lewis actually. Oh, really? Who, I mean, isn't necessarily dealing with this idea of the natural law, but in in two of his books, actually, in the beginning of Mere Christianity and then in the Abolition of Man, he kind of appeals to this idea of what might be called like the moral argument in apologetics. Yeah. Like there are moral laws out there, and we just like know them, right? They're pretty inherent, and especially in the Abolition of Man, he goes through. And in like the appendix or whatever, he like lists all of these very similar moral laws, right? Moral codes and specific commands that they have that are very similar. He calls all of these together like the Tao, that this is like a very ancient sort of moral code that seems like pretty universally recognized in a lot of ancient cultures, one of which was Israel um, and those are specifically carried in the Ten Commandments. And so in, in this framework, right, we're trying to distinguish more of what I think you're talking about, Chase, which is what is like objectively wrong? What should we not do versus what has to do with like this strong and weak conscience area? When it comes to that, I think it's, it's really difficult, right? Because it requires a sort of reflexive knowledge of your culture to know oh you know people typically don't do such and such thing they have a reason for not doing it but is it wrong in the eyes of god to do it if i have a you know a clear conscience while doing it versus something like what we're dealing with in crime and punishment which is murder and what we see is that it's not a matter of a weak or a strong conscience because raskolnikov 
is trying to commit murder with a clear conscience, right? He's trying to have a strong conscience towards murder. And what we see through the novel is that it's impossible, right? That the domain of murder is not in like that strong conscience, weak conscience sort of view, but it's in like the natural law view that no matter how you think about it, you're going to have a guilty conscience about it. Wow. Wise words said by Timothy. Um, thank you, Tim. Does anyone have any other thoughts? Chase, I feel like you want to say something real quick. Yeah, to Tim's point, it's important to also distinguish like when our conscience is conflicting with what is actually objectively true. I think I'm, I'm thinking particularly like the importance of scripture and the importance of definitions using language that allow us to know what is good and what is wrong. And I think that throughout scripture, whether it's the law or other commandments that are given, like the importance of them is that they are intended to lead us toward the end which we were created, which is God. I mean, you have kind of like in, you know, in the very beginning, God gave commandments to the human beings to follow and by breaking them, they were led away from him. And you can see parallels between Raskolnikov's like disobedience and his, his, his conscience that bears witness to that. There's a version in our conscience because of the fact that we are being led away toward what we are created to be. But I think it's also important to distinguish like how, like where the law, what the law plays in the Christian life today, which we can talk more about because everyone has sinned, whether you're under the law or not under the law. And that doesn't make the law bad as Paul will develop in his argument in, the, in his letter to the Romans. But that just means that there's necessity for the fulfillment of the law, which is Christ. And through him, um, the, the ability to actually obey the law of God in a way where you're not condemned under it. You know, I mean, I guess this is this is this is definitely related, you know. But it, it's a bit tangential. You know, I specialize in the tangential things. You know, as do as do as do I as well. But but anywho, um, I do think that it, I want to circle back to what's the importance of guilt. Then the law is definitely very important, as you said, Chase. You need the law of God in order to reach your end as a human, which is to be with God. And the role that guilt plays, I think, is ultimately that guilt is the recognition that you have strayed away from the law. Which I, I believe that this is what you'll discuss next week, right? Chase is about redemption, maybe question mark redemption resurrection i think they're Red all yeah, yeah redemption resurrection right you can't have that without recognition and it's the same thing even because if we go way back to the beginning of the syllabus in litham with greek tragedy if you want to have some sort of catharsis you have to have some stage of recognition the greek hero has to realize something has gone bad or something could have gone bad and i think you know natalia you've mentioned that after the crime the book is depressing maybe i'm messed up but i don't think that it's that depressing for me whenever i read crime and punishment i'm like this is a human being who has done something atrocious but now he's finding god now i mean even at the end of the book which i don't want to spoil it but sometimes you have to see that you've strayed and recognize that in order to want to return back right i wouldn't say sometimes i would say all the time all the time Let's yeah. say it all the time. Everyone all the together. Time. All, the time. All, the time. all the time. All the time. All the time. Yes. I mean, my, my, my reasoning in saying that like crime and punishment can be depressing is like if I were to say that Ecclesiastes is, is depressing, it's, it's heavy and it reveals a lot about humanity and about how we perceive sin and what is good in this world and what is bad in this world i mean i love ecclesiastes it's, it's literally my favorite book in the bible um but i think I, I guess to your point like in order for one to come to restoration with christ and be fully cleansed of one's sins and one's wrongdoings one has to acknowledge that 
wrong. So I guess in that sense, can guilt be seen as like an act of grace from God? Um, and of course, like I, we can go further into like what Raskolnikov experiences, because I don't think it's just guilt alone. I also think he's an argument can be made. That he's also experiencing a lot of shame as well and remorse for his actions. Which, of course, is not the same thing as guilt. But what do you... So, like, would you guys... I'm sure you guys would. I think you guys already did. Is guilt necessary? Yes. Yeah, we already established that. Yes. All the time. All the time. (laughs) That was loud. Okay. All right. So, when I was brainstorming with Chase yesterday about um, what we can talk about within Crime and Punishment, um, the first few chapters of Genesis came to mind. Genesis 3, 1 to 13. And I won't read all of it, but I'll just read a few snippets. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. The Lord had made. He had said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall eat of any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden." And God said, "You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die." So already Eve already has this step is already made clear um, from God and also from her husband that. This action of going forward and committing and taking the fruit is wrong. But, and you know, if you've read Genesis, then you know that this, spoiler alert, they do eat the fruit. What? (laughs) In that act of rebellion and Eve going forward and saying, and basically essentially saying like, no, I have the authority and I have, I guess, like a sense to say, like to sway and think no, that's not actually what God said. And of course, the serpent is there. And, you know, it's not all Eve's fault. You know, I do believe Eve was responsible. But of course, the serpent was there too to go ahead and try and twist some things and be crafty in that that action was justified. And you can see that also within Raskolnikov as well, where like he's trying to rationalize every single facet of his action, but he ultimately cannot. Yeah, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts about that one parallel in particular, if anyone has any issues or disagreements I'm willing to hear. Yeah, I think this just goes back to what I was saying about um, how sin itself being almost it, it sin it's sin is anti-creation. When we sin, we're our consciences bear witness to that sin because it's going against what we were created to be. In Genesis Genesis one through two, you have this picture of human beings created in the image of God and sin like damaging our ability to be who we were created to be and. Paul makes a really good comparison in Romans. This is, you should read Romans side by side with Crime and Punishment. How about that? Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes Romans, Romans, Crime and Punishment. Actually, well, Ecclesiastes in Romans is a very interesting thing to compare because in Romans 8, Paul will actually talk about, you know, the futility you have in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. And Paul in, in, in Romans 8 is talking about the futility of creation being done away with because of Christ Jesus. And so, uh, but I, what I was saying is that Paul makes this comparison of first in, in, in Adam, all of humanity died, but in Christ, all of humanity is made alive. And so like what, I think the reason why Natalia, you can say something like guilt is an act of grace because there is something to be received. There is a gift to be received that through the recognition of our guilt and through faith and repentance can be received through that. And so um, I would say, like, what hope does Raskolnikov have throughout this novel? He's just tunneling downward into utter darkness. But in the last, in the epilogue, you have this glimmer of of hope. You have this glimmer of grace. This is Paul writing. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, many more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. This reality that, yes, through Adam's sin, all have died, but through Christ's gift of grace, all are made alive through those who are in Christ, who have placed their faith in him. And I think that this ultimately goes back to what we were discussing a little while ago about Raskolnikov when he, before he commits his crime, a lot of the reason why he thinks that it's justified is because he thinks that he, as man, will save everyone, right, by committing this murder. But in reality, after he commits the crime, he realizes it's not through me that humanity will be saved. It's not through me. I'm not above the law, right? The law, God, Jesus is above me. So I think an element of pride can definitely be argued into Raskolnikov's reasoning as well, as well as with Adam and Eve to a certain extent. But Yeah, and I think that only highlights the humility of Christ, the one who didn't come to pridely kill people in order to save others, but the one who actually laid down his own life for the sake of, for the sake of humanity. Mm-hmm. After fulfilling the law, right? That, uh, yeah. That, you know, for him, it wasn't a matter of like, having to go beyond the law, but that he perfectly fulfilled the law in that he never transgressed and never sinned and yet still gives himself up as the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. How long have we been talking for? A while. All right. A good think, long while. I think it's time to wrap this up. Um, no. No, honestly, there's so much to talk about within Crime and Punishment, and this is why we're doing two episodes. Oh, wait. I was going to tell a funny story. Okay. Oh, no. Is it... <laughs> well, you know, the the first episode of Crime and Punishment is about... Natalia, it's about guilt, right? Yes. This is about guilt and conscience, right? Um, I wanted to tell a funny story. I met Dean Valentini one time, and uh, he was talking to me and my two other friends, and he asked me, well, so, you know, where do you come from? What high school did you go to? And I said that I went, I had been in Catholic school for 12 years. I'm, I'm not Catholic, but I, I mean, I am Christian, but I'm not Catholic. Um, and he goes, oh, Catholic school. And then he immediately asked me, what do you think of guilt? <laughs> so I've been, <laughs> I've been thinking about guilt for a while. Um, I hope you have too, to the audience. <laughs> you know, thank you, Gabrielle, for that. Because I was actually, when I was, yesterday when I was writing down what I was going to talk about, I was debating putting in the icebreaker question. What are y'all most guilty of <laughs> within life? Oof. <laughs> Tell us your deepest when I was secrets. Born. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us your deepest secrets. Okay. Um, well, this has been a very fruitful discussion, and I'm definitely looking forward to the continuation of *Crime and Punishment* n- in the next episode. Um, but until then, you can follow us on Instagram at the Good Fight, and you can email us at witnessthegoodfight@gmail.com if you have any questions, vehement disagreements. I don't know. Just email us if you want to talk all of the coffee. vehement disagreements can be emailed directly to me and to tim I- <laughs> yes to gabrielle and to tim it goes to those folks and until then god bless have a great rest of your week see you later bye mm-hmm.